Hi, the ho, you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and the pursuit of passion. Every week we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and career. With Thanksgiving coming tomorrow here in the States, I thought it would be fun to rerun last year's Thanksgiving Day special about the origin of the Tin Man. This episode has one of my favorite guest stories about The Wizard of Oz. It also has an amazing interview with Whitestone Motion Pictures director and owner Brandon McCormick. But before we hear that, I have an excerpt from my interview with Brandon's producing partner in Whitestone and the composer behind all the amazing music you're going to hear, Nick Kirk. This is from a never-before-aired interview. You'll hear how he works with the director, his inspiration as a composer, and insights on collaborating with other artists in the making of a film. At the end of the Tin Man episode, there is a bonus segment wherein Brandon gives more details on the origins of the other characters from The Wizard of Oz. All around, this episode is chock full of artistic inspiration. Remember, when you subscribe to the show on iTunes, it helps us out a lot. Also, please leave us a rating review if you like what you hear. Now, without further ado, on with the show. One of my personal favorite films that I've ever created was a short documentary about the creative process. I've played bits and pieces of it here on the show before. It was in the making of that documentary that I met for the first time the filmmakers behind the Atlanta-based film production company Whitestone Motion Pictures. We've had Whitestone's director, Brandon McCormick, on numerous times over the past year. But we've never had on his producing partner and the musical genius behind all of Whitestone's original soundtracks, Nicholas Kirk. If you hear any of Nick's work, you know you're listening to a special talent. That's the song Second Glance from Whitestone's film That's Magic. It was actually the first film of theirs that I ever saw, and it was the one that made me know that this was somebody I just had to talk to. You may remember it from an episode back in May where I talked about my first encounter with Brandon. For months since then, I've been wanting to air some of my interview with Nick. And so finally, we're here. We'll start with Nick sharing how he works with the director. Well, you know, you guys told, Brandon told a bit of the story of Whitestone last time he was on, and I'm, and I'm definitely weird. I'm not, they're not all like this, so uh, forgive me for, I'm going to tell you what I know as opposed to what I think happens. Yes. But, you know, I'm, I'm heavily involved in uh, these projects uh, so far as even writing them sometimes with Brandon. Brandon and I are, are co-writers on a lot of this stuff. And so I've got it in my head from day one, and, and Brandon and I have been partners now for over a decade, so we... We kind of know what we're getting in for, uh, for for better and for worse on these projects and films together. So, you know, I have I have freedom to do whatever I want. At the same point, though, I love I love it when I do something and I get pushback because, 
you know, when you're, it's almost like, it's a bit like a marriage when you're used to being with someone for a long time, it kind of starts to feel comfortable and, and some of the things you maybe signed up for are a little different, but you don't really think about it because everything else is going well. So when they finally push back in honesty and say, Hey, here's something that you did that you may love, but I might need to see something different or can you change this one thing? It's kind of nice for me to hear that and go, okay, cool. Let's, let's move down that road then and push myself because if you're not going to push yourself, then no one else is going to push, push you for, you know? If you already have it in your mind and you kind of know what the film is ahead of time, are you writing music even before it's shot or do you wait until after um, everything's in the can and you have something to actually score? I mean, I usually start before just because I can. And it's something we had always done because we just we really just were afforded the the luxury of doing that. And um, and I thought that was just always kind of weird. And then I listened to an interview with Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan when Inception came out and they were saying that he had written all that music before the film even came out. He just kind of kept reading the screenplay and talking to uh, the, to Chris and just really kind of flushed it out in his head and sent it to him. And they just ended up cutting it up and putting it kind of where they wanted to based on how they described the scenes as opposed to really, and you can watch that film too. And it's, you know, it's wall to wall. It's pretty iconic at this point, but it is a wall to wall uh, music film, but it's just a different, it's a different mindset and different way of doing it. And anytime we get the, uh, the luxury of time, which, you know, doesn't always happen. But when you have the time, I love to start writing beforehand and it's inspired all kinds of stuff. And we do, we use music in lots of different ways. And, and Brandon has, um, has used songs that have come from that and have used scores and, and they help turn the scene and just knowing, okay, this right here, this thing we're just working on is it's feeling a little longer here, but I know the music is going to do something. It's going to help it feel not as long because I really want these reactions or I really want this thing to kind of transpire on screen. So tell me then, how does what you just said reconcile with what you were saying earlier where, you know, where you're, where you're creating something that specifically goes with a shot, like, you know, an eye roll or something like that. Sure. Versus if you're making the music ahead of time, then that's not really the case. So like, which one do you prefer, you know, and, um, well, number one, it's all about trust too. You have to mm -hmm. trust that the person editing the film is treating what you did with respect because, you know. I have a very big luxury of sitting in a seat where I know exactly what it takes to make a film. I sit in a producer chair. I know what exactly what it takes to get the financing and cast the actors and to get the talent. I mean, it's a, I know what that involves to drive out the location. So I also know what involves, uh, making, you know, music, making a record. And, and I wouldn't say one's, uh, more necessarily more difficult than the other as opposed to different. So it's, it's nice to have an editor that respects that process and knows that, for every minute they've spent editing, editing this film or writing it, the composer spent a great deal of time writing music for it as well. So don't just drag it in there and, and turn it down as your, as your impulse response, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, do you have a preference, though, where you're first, you know, creating music specifically for, for like a particular shot or particular scenes yeah. versus creating it ahead of time and using it like wherever it might make sense? Um. You know, if it's a really detailed piece, it's nice sometimes. Like, you know, if you've ever put in score under a montage, it feels like it can go anywhere. But the but if you watch trailers, they specifically cut trailers to music because, like I said, it's easier to kind of on a montage or a, or a assemblage of clips, it's easier to cut those clips around beats as opposed to writing a score to a million different, you know, rinky-dink cuts. So it kind of depends on what you're doing. Uh, I love writing stuff beforehand because it gets us excited and it gets, it starts to make the film feel more real. 
just like seeing uh, art direction stuff or seeing costumes, it starts to really come alive before it gets in the editor. So I love doing that beforehand. And then, you know, if we get the opportunity to do that and I, and I can really flush out a piece, sometimes it's great to see them go cut, you know, cut the film around that and see how the, the music is affecting the pace of it. So, again, it, it all depends on who's doing it, I guess. <laughs> the magic of the second's glance Watch close the smiling children dance When we're showing up at the table and I'm, and I'm the ceiling, we're in trouble, you know. I want, I want, <laughs> I want my ideas to be the floor, the foundation that we build upon, and it's it's got to be a solid foundation. But I want to be able to go up to the sky, you know. And I think so many people show up to the table with, all right, my my talent is the ceiling, and they don't. And, and I would argue they don't even know they're doing that. Sometimes they just they've got it so set in their ways that this is how I want it, and they're not open to saying, hey, let's let's flip this paradigm and make make your ceiling our floor, and let's go up even higher. And that's a yeah, that's a that's a real skill right there. If you can show up every time with that mentality, uh, the composer has thought about this music hopefully more than you have as well. So even if you yeah. put that that temp music that you love that 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 score from Braveheart or whatever that you're <laughs> obsessed with, you know, it's not going to be that, but it's going to be something. And again, it's not always this way. And I know we're not we're not we're not the big boys, so we're not, we're sitting here and we're, we're we're I'm sure used to working with people way less talented than than uh james horner uh most of the time but the trust is the more you progress and the more you find people that you trust around you they're going to show up having done the homework and having done the work and they're going to hit play and hopefully they just have gotten it right and i think i think people that really dive in tend to get it right you know i mentioned earlier about the creative process documentary i did back in 2009 in the beginning of that film, Nick said this. The main feeling I, I go through when I'm writing a new song is this sucks. <laughs> Back when I originally made that film, I didn't explore further what he meant when he said that. So in this interview, I had the opportunity to finally ask him. Well, what I think I meant by that is, so f for me, I will kind of play something in its rawest form, and it has to has to speak to you or it's not worth doing, you know, and I, and, and I feel like someone like, you know, John Williams, the, the melody for Star Wars is pretty simple. You can play it on one hand. It's no big deal. Any kid could walk up to the piano and play it. Dun, 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 dun. It's no big deal. However, he played it. And when he played it, his, his real talent was recognizing that that was good. You know, it wasn't some magic combination of notes. It was, oh man, I stumbled upon something great and I know that's great. And so for me, it has to start with, so I think it's a I think it's a falsehood for me to say it's crap. I think what I mean is the first time I hear it back after I've kind of recorded it. So I'll 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 like it enough to kind of pursue it and then I'll get it into the computer and start messing with it. And that's kind of the first time I it's kind of been played back to me and I go, "Guys, this is terrible. This isn't any good. What am I talking about?" And I don't know. I feel like that's a pretty common creative uh uh, situation for people is the first time you see it back. You know, if, I'm sure the first time you've seen a cut of something, you're like, "This is garbage." We we just did a film, and upon seeing the rough cut, I remember thinking, "Oh, this is oh, this is so bad. What what is wrong with us? We thought this was <laughs> going to be so good, and it's just it's so bad." I literally like almost had a mini panic attack. I just went outside, I went running. I was just like, "God, what is wrong with me?" I thought we were early on to something, mm -hmm. and it wasn't that the edit was bad or that um, the film was bad. It was just the first time you saw it, what was in your, it's always been in your head. And then when it comes out and you see what you've got, you go, okay, this is it. How do I make what I have match what's in my head? Because they're not hitting it right now. And then that's, you know, that's the editing process. But 
that's what I think. Oh, I mean by it's crap the first time you hear it, the first time you watch anything, you're like, oh, this is just garbage. <laughs> this is not at all what I wanted to do. Yeah. What do you do when uh, you're in a situation and you can't make it match with you, what's in your head? Because that's actually been like a specific topic that's come up a couple of times on the show over the season is when um, we, we, had, we did a whole episode on the gap that um, – uh, between talent and taste. Yeah, yeah, that famous recording by uh, Ira Glass where he talks about the gap between, you know, your talent and taste, like you said, and yeah, um, and and you know, I talked about you know, as a filmmaker, sometimes you have this vision in your head of what something's going to look like, and then when you actually get it shot and edit it, you know, ne'er the two shall meet. So, sure. Um, what do you do when you're in a situation where you're faced with something like that, where it's and there's no going back. Like, okay, this is not ever going to look like what I had in my head. How do you deal with that? Well, I think that's what separates the men from the boys. Um, and I think the people that are that are ever going to succeed in this are going to be the people that stick through it and finish it. Because it's so, oh my goodness, it's so yummy to make something and it suck and go, oh, oh well, I quit. Like, oh my goodness, it would feel, it would taste so good to just sit there and make something and be so excited. And when it's not good and I have to go the extra you know, a hundred miles to get it there to just go, you know what? Oh, well, next time I'll do another one sometime. And just, I mean, how many people do you know that have made something to 90% and then never released it or made it to whatever? I mean, it happens all the time. And, you know, real, who said this, I might be Steve Jobs. He's like real artist ship or something like that. It's like, you have to actually, <laughs> right, right. you actually have to do it. And, and that's so true. And I think, I think when faced with that situation, you just double down and go, all right, there's something there. And it's never going to be what's in your head. It never is. And, and the, the, the prayer and the hope is that while it won't be what's in your head, it can be something equally as good, just a little different, you know? That's magic. The whole world seems to say that's magic. If only they had brains. That's magic. At some point this season, I hope to do a special shortened episode on film composers. And when I do, I'll have more of my full interview with Nick to share. In the meantime, now we're going to transition to that Thanksgiving Day Tin Man special we originally aired last year. We've added many new listeners to the show since last year, so for many of you, this may be your first time hearing it. And if so, you're in for a treat. But even if you've heard it before, it never hurts to listen again. The lessons learned from the dark origins of the Tin Man are lessons all of us as artists need to heed. At the end of the special, in addition to Brandon talking about the origins of the other Wizard of Oz characters, we have another bonus, another first-time excerpt from my interview with Nick. In it, he tells stories about two of his favorite composers, Thomas Newman and John Williams. Enjoy. As you may have ascertained from the Your First Time episode on the show, growing up as a kid, I was a hopeless romantic and got a relatively early start in my crushes on girls, as early as the second grade, as a matter of fact. In pretty much every grade during my elementary school years, there was always some girl I liked and was totally gaga over. But my young romantic fascinations were not limited to girls I knew in person. Like many boys my age, there were those girls, real or not, that I saw on TV that captured my fancy. Jan Brady, Darla from The Little Rascals, Daphne on Scooby-Doo, Titsy from Facts of Life, from season one when she was on the skates. 
And I don't know any young prepubescent heterosexual boy who didn't have a thing for I Dream of Jeannie and Wonder Woman. For, you know, kind of obvious reasons. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! All the world is waiting for you And the power you possess But I think of all the girls I saw on television growing up, the one who had perhaps the strongest hold on this young boy's heart was this vision. Yes, let me go on the record by saying straight guys can like Dorothy too, if not for different reasons. When I was in the fifth grade, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz was it for me. I was smitten. I used to dream of rescuing her from the clutches of the Wicked Witch. I think Over the Rainbow really touched my sensitive soul. And every year, I got to see her and hear that angelic voice on Thanksgiving. The yearly Wizard of Oz viewing on Thanksgiving evening was a ritual with my mom, still single at the time, my brother and me for pretty much every year from pre-adolescence through high school even. For that reason, it holds a very special place in my heart. But I'm not alone in my affection for the MGM classic. The Wizard of Oz is one of those magical and memorable remnants of the golden age of Hollywood that has captured the hearts of millions of people around the world. But I think it has a particularly special effect on those of us that would go on to become filmmakers. But I think the movie that affected me the most, and the first time I ever saw it, uh, was it was on television. Because um, I grew up in a farm. About That's the voice of Tom Wyland. Tom is the co-producer on the sci-fi original web series called Sky City Haya, currently in production. He and the series director and creator, Adad Warda, were two of the first filmmakers I interviewed for this show. We'll be hearing more from them and their amazing project later on in the season. But Tom had the most interesting story behind his history on watching The Wizard of Oz. And when we saw it, we used to gather as a whole bunch because there's seven children in the family. So we'd all sit around a TV set, and we didn't have a color TV set, so we had a black and white TV set. So at the time, we didn't even know that Oz changed. That's <laughs> we, we had no idea that Oz had changed to this colorful world, and my parents never even told us. So we would every year have this sort of, or you know, kind of uh, screening of the Wizard of Oz. And then I remember when we when we eventually got a color TV set, and we all sit down to watch the movie, and none of us had any idea that the the movie would change <laughs> to color. And we sit down, and I remember all of us just like our eyes wide open, and we would just reacted in such a magical way. It was just, it wasn't only watching the movie, but it was my brothers and sisters and everybody together, and we all like went, oh my god, so that's how the movie is. It's like in color in this section. So at that time, even when you sat down and watched it, you didn't you didn't have any expectation that it was going to switch the color? No, we didn't, no. And then when it hit, it was like, oh my goodness. That story still trips me out to this day. Honestly, it was hearing that story back in July or whenever I recorded it that made me want to do this special episode in the first place. I thought to myself, I will make up some reason to do a Wizard of High special just so I can highlight that story. The Wizard of Oz is one of those ironic stories from the Hollywood's heyday. 
Released in 1939, the film was a critical success, being nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, and it won two for Best Original Score and Best Song Over the Rainbow. But unfortunately, it was a box office disaster for MGM and didn't recoup the studio's initial investment until its re release 10 years later in 1949. But it was the television syndication that began in 1956 that really made the movie the international phenomena it has since become, being named the National Library of Congress's most viewed film on television. To this day, it has a 99% Rotten Tomatoes rating. And frankly, I want to know the heartless jerks that make up the 1% who don't like that movie. I mean, come on, how does Wizard of Oz not have a 100% Rotten Tomatoes rating? Since its first premiere, there have been quite a few spin offs and adaptations of L. Frank Baum's Magical World. There have been animated TV shorts, stage shows, and remakes. There was, of course, the African American stage musical The Wiz, which ultimately became a movie starring Diana Ross as Dorothy, and of all people, Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. Today, we have the stage sensation Wicked, and in 2013, James Franco, Milo Kunis, and Michelle Williams starred in the less than wonderful Oz the Great and Powerful, which was a sort of origin story of the wizard. But perhaps one of my favorite reimaginings of the wonderful world created by L. Frank Baum was this. Here is a story you think you know, but do not. A story about a young woodsman, a beautiful maiden, and a desperate love. This woodsman's story is not known to many, for he's known by another name. That's the captivating introduction to the Whitestone Motion Pictures short film Heartless, the story of the Tin Man. The writer director of that film was my personal muse, good friend, and friend of the show, Atlanta filmmaker Brandon McCormick. Brandon is like a walking encyclopedia of artist profundities. Whenever I need a poignant, powerful, and moving soundbite for an episode, I can always find one for my interviews with Brandon. Earlier this summer, while in Atlanta for client work, I stopped by Whitestone to have a heart to heart talk with Brandon about the story of the Tin Man. Pun fully intended. At Whitestone Motion Pictures, beautiful plantation style. Why are they ever having slaves here? To give you some context, Whitestone's offices are in this old remodeled plantation style mansion in Buford, Georgia, about 40 miles north of downtown Atlanta. It's literally just down the street from the agency I used to work for when I lived there. Good, how you doing? Good to see you, bro. Do they ever have any slaves here? Hmm? I have no idea. I was saying, right, is that a, is that a is that a commentary on my protege program? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was just commenting how it's like this uh, plantation style looking house. And yes. Say, oh, man. Sure. Here, let me get this on you. All right, this is take two of Tim Man's story because um, Ron forgot to push the record button. This will be better. I can, I can do it. The original story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a lowly woodcutter who fell in love with a maiden. And uh, they were going to go get married in secret. But before they were to get married, the woodcutter said, look, I want to build us this house and, and, and that we'll live in forever. And so uh, he goes out and he starts uh, building this house. Now, the maiden's mother hates the idea of her getting married to this lowly woodcutter. So she hires a witch, uh, which is the Wicked Witch of the East. To oh, it, is. it is, yeah. Uh, to curse his axe, and so that the axe would, the head would fly off and, and harm him from time to time. Uh, so, as the woodsman is cutting down the trees, the axe head flies off and it cuts off his arm. And he goes into town 
to find a doctor, but there's no doctor, but there is a tinner. And so the tinner gives it his best shot and makes a tin arm. And uh, it's actually does a great job. It's stronger than the other ones and it's really efficient. Um, goes back out into the woods and of course that axe keeps flying off and chops off his other arm, his legs. Uh, the tinner keeps replacing these parts. Eventually his head replaces that. And the last thing it hits is his chest. And when he goes to the tinner, the tinner says, I'm not good enough to make a heart. I can't, it's a thing I can't make. Um, which is why he later in the story, uh, when we pick up, he needs to go find a heart from the Wizard of Oz. Um, but when he loses his heart, he, he loses sight of why he was out in the woods in the first place. He falls in love with the efficiency of, of chopping down trees, that actual process of, of tree chopping, as opposed to, and loses sight of the building this house and his love and his maiden. The maiden comes, tries to reason with him, and he just ignores her and she leaves and, and he just goes off for years and years just taking down trees and uh, taking out forests and so much so that when one day when it's raining he gets caught out in the rain mid-swing and freezes up and he's there for a thousand years and he's there to he's there to think about what he did and so uh, is kind of internally tortured by realizing what he's done so that when Dorothy comes down the yellow brick road he sees a chance at redemption. So it became the story, a kind of a morality tale of falling in love with our work. And, you know, we all fall into this trap saying, look, I want to do this work to, to change lives or to provide for my family or do these great things. And then we fall in love with how great we are at that job. Then, then our love becomes just the process of that job. And we lose sight of why we started in the first place. I doubt there is any artist or hardworking entrepreneur among you who hasn't at some point fell into the trap of the Tin Man. Come on, if you're honest with yourself, wouldn't you say you do that? So, some, from time to time, when I when I'm just in the process and, and just just working like a just a, uh, working like a dog, um, you know, I we talk we have joke around here. Just you know, I'm just heartless. I've just I've, I've just lost my heart, man. It's just like I don't know why I'm out here. I'm just chopping trees. And then we just got to reset and go, okay, why are we doing this in the first place? And Because uh, we value, again, the core principles of what we do and family and all that kind of stuff. And so um, you know, may we never get so heartless that we forget, uh, that we fall in love with our own proficiency and forget why we started chopping trees in the first place. episode was produced by me with production help from Chris Huslidge and Tommy Ferguson. Very special thanks to Brandon McCormick for taking time to meet with me and give me so much fodder for this podcast. Stay tuned past the credits to hear that extended excerpt from my interview with Brandon as he talks about the origins of the Scarecrow, the Lion, the Wizard, as well as comment on the original color of the now famous Ruby Slippers. 
Also, go to the blog post for this episode to check out the full Heartless short film. It's a haunting tale you won't soon forget. There are also some inspiring behind-the-scenes videos about its making you'll want to check out. You can find it at daredreamer.fm. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org and Song Freedom. Original music from the Heartless soundtrack was also used, courtesy of Whitestone Motion Pictures. Music and lyrics by Nick Kirk and the Brothers Bright, all rights reserved. Check the show notes for links to artists and tracks. And while we're on the subject of music, Radio Film School is supported in part by Song Freedom. When you need to license high-quality mainstream music, look no further than songfreedom.com slash radio and use the offer code radio to unlock a standard go-level license worth $30. We thank Song Freedom for their support. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Radio Film School. If you appreciated this episode and all the work we put into the show, please tell a friend and spread the word. And do leave a review and ratings in iTunes. Tell us your favorite childhood memory of The Wizard of Oz. That's it for now. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with. Or, as Brandon so eloquently put it, A story well told with less production value will always be better than a poorly told story with the most amazing production value. So true, Brandon. So true. So I spoke with Brandon for a while. Here's an extended excerpt from my interview where he talks about the origins of the other characters in Wizard of Oz. Enjoy. That's a dark story. It is. I love it. Oh, the original, the, the book is very dark. Right. So, like, how does it go from... And, and there are some aspects of Wizard of Oz that, if you're younger, are kind of scary. Oh, yeah, no. Flying um, monkeys are terrifying. Yeah, the absolutely. flying monkeys are kind of freaky. Oh, yeah. Um, but overall, it has... It does... Particularly as you get older and that stuff is not as disturbing um, as you are when you're young, it has a lighter feel. I mean, definitely does not feel as dark as the story you just told. Sure. Um, do you have any insight as to that change in the making of the movie? I think it was the year it was made. It was MGM. I don't know who wanted to make it a musical. Uh, <laughs> I, but hey, you know what? I'm doing musical stuff. And I don't know. It's fun. So I just that was just the interpretation. I think the same thing happened with uh, Willy Wonka. And it was a much darker tale. Yeah. Um, and each one of the... Well, Willy Wonka has that one tunnel scene. No, it is very dark. He Even is killing now, off that's kids. that's freaking out. No, he, he is killing off children. Um, which is, not, again, some well, morality tale. I mean, I've never read the book. I don't not know. Being killed off in the movie. Well, I don't know if they ever just. Yeah, I mean, but he's flushing them down into the incinerator. <laughs> so I don't know. It is pretty dark, but right. still. Um, uh, and it also is a musical. I mean, it was, there's a trend, I guess, there. Yeah. But um, musicals were big in the yeah, no. twentieth century. I mean, we still we all can still uh, uh, you know whistle if I only had a brain. So it's a cool right. take. But the original source material is way darker, and the story, the backstory of the scarecrow and the the lion, is the same. Is it really? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's it, they're the what same. Do you know those backstories? Uh, I remember, yeah, a little. You don't bit. have to tell the story, but like. Oh no! Yeah, no. Briefly, no. So the, yeah, the story of the um, the story of the scarecrow is that he becomes you know, conscious as he's being built. So his head is built first, so he's thinking, and as the rest of his body is being built, he's thinking of all these wonderful things he's going to do in his life, the places he's going to travel, and the things he's going to achieve. And so finally, when he's fully created, his creator sticks him on a stick in the middle of a forest. (laughs) 
and he just can't go anywhere. And so he's struggled. And then over the years, just thinks, well, I guess I'm out here because I'm dumb and I'm full of, you know, stuff and, and, um, you know, my head's full of nothing. Um, and just loses sight, I guess, of, of who he was and, and what he originally thought of himself. The Cowardly Lion is born into a proud family, and the father is king of the forest, and uh, the, his roar is to be uh, is fierce, and he could never roar, and so he was never respected, mm. and so over the years he lost his courage because uh, the animals of the forest just you know treated him like a joke, and right. he couldn't ever live up to his father's expectations, mm-hmm. and so he needed to go find that courage to take his father's role. That's some dark junk right there. Yeah, it's, man. But it's, I mean, it's good. Like, it's, Was that written as a children's book? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I, 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 I it's it been was. a few years. Um, but all of his stuff is very political and very, yeah. you know, again, even like, you know, The Wizard of Oz. Um, the, in the original, the, the Yellow Brick Road is because the, um, the wizard was, it was a taxation thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he was taking everyone's money so he could pave this wonderful road to his city. Um, so the Wizard of Oz was kind of a villain in the original too, a little darker. But, but wasn't he from? He's from like Kansas too, or something. Like that. Yeah, but he kind of became uh, in love with his own power, right? And um, was very much uh, so. That's why you know they, and he just was very very brutal to the people mm-hmm. um, and took all their money to make the the opulent road. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a bit darker um, right. than kind of the original. Uh, well, no. one thing I, the touch, I like the touch you did at the beginning of Heartless, where you see the beginning of the Yellow Brick Road being mm-hmm. made. Was that something you just threw in there? Yeah, no, like an origin that, story. Yeah. You just want to see that stuff. I love that kind of stuff. So, sure, yeah, right. it opens with two guys building the Yellow Brick Road, you know, like, ah, oh, it's cool, uh, you know. And it gives you, at the very end, you see it completed and you see these, uh, you know, the ruby shoes coming down. Right. And uh, which were actually silver in the, in the, uh, in the book, oh, really? but I couldn't bring. My, you have to give it. So yeah. that was more of an homage to the to sure. the movie than to the book. We struggled with that back and forth. I may have shot one of each, but like, so in the book, there's silver slippers, not ruby slippers. Yes, there are silver slippers, huh. and so we 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 had it like it's crazy because we had to like it felt like a responsibility to the book and also to the movie because because yeah. majority of people know the movie, right? Um, and so even like you know the way he's frozen is is that same pose. Um, so like the ruby slippers, we had this like it was like the the choice. It was the you know uh, do you go with the red slippers and to the homage to the movie or you go you silver? Yeah, I had to. We had to. So yeah. we just like tip to the movie and give it to everybody. Do you have um, insight as to why they switched from silver to ruby for the movie? It probably looked cool in the I shot was and color. Say that. Yep. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. I just it probably I would I would guess, uh, yeah. uh, and I probably would have made the same choice at the time. Going ah, yeah. oh, this looks this looks great on camera. Um, yeah, so you know it's interesting. They they. Um, uh, they they did I guess they had the same choices of going back to the source material and going okay right. so how can we keep the spirit of what he did uh, but modernize it to you know their time uh, and that's kind of what we wanted to do how do we keep the spirit and and we felt like there was you know there's two big things you have the book and you have the movie um, and then we're trying to like play in that world right. that's kind of a tall order and we just didn't want to like our goal with that movie was just not to screw it up that was mm-hmm. like the, it wasn't it was just it was like just don't screw this up and don't make it terrible. Um, and so that was kind of the fun of, of Heartless was to kind of give the homage to those, those greats. For a project like that, did you have to get rights? 
Nope, it was right on public domain, which was awesome. Was it really? Oh yeah, no, we were thrilled because I started writing it before we knew that. Right. But uh, so it was kind of a gamble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, luckily, it was in public domain by the time we uh, right. we made it. What's interesting about the story is that, I and mean, one thing you learn, and I wonder if this moral is in the book, but in the movie, um, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Wizard of Oz, um, you kind of learn how everyone kind of learns they already had what it was that they were searching for. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Dorothy always had the ability to go home, yeah. the lion always had courage, and you mm-hmm. see it retroactively, you see it looking back, oh, the scarecrow was always smart. He was the one coming up with all the right. genius ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tin Man, you see examples of his heart. So is that explored in the book that they already had what it was that they were looking for? Yeah, I think that that was it. Again, with, with the Scarecrow, he, when he's first created, he's brilliant. Right. And then he just, over time, goes, well, I guess I'm just a dummy. Right. Um, the, the Tin Man, uh, you know, he lost his physical heart in the fantasy thing, but... It's just a representation that really, because he did have regret as mm-hmm. he's, you know, waiting for a thousand years. Right. Um, he did realize, ah, oh, I, I messed that up real bad. So yeah. he had the capacity for love. He just fell in love with his own. Yeah. It's his fault. And that's part of it too, is the Tin Man, the Tin Man, he's not a victim of an external circumstance. It's his fault. Mm-hmm. Like he, he messed that up real right. bad. Um, the other guys, and you know, again, the, the, the Cowardly Lion had it in him, but he just kind of. Because of the circumstance they were in, they go, okay, well, I guess this is true about me mm-hmm. and accepted it. And I think Wizard of Oz is, is about not accepting those situations and, and, and going back again to who you are and who you were originally. The Woodsman was this passionate craftsman who, who fell in love and was willing to do anything for his bride. And because of his own um, pride and process and efficiency. It was very much about modernization and about mm-hmm. all this, like, um, creating, a, you know, Baum hated this idea of the modernization of our culture. And so, again, it's like falling in love with the technology or the process more so than the actual passion. Um, you know, and, and I kind of related akin to sometimes we fall in love with the, the tech specs of, the, of our craft and we can talk for days on Alexa versus red or 5k versus 4k, um, color space and programs and editing and stuff. And that's cool. And that's great. And you sh- we need to know all that stuff. But you know, I, I want to talk about why did we all cry at the end of toy story three? Like mm-hmm. that's like, I don't know, like, well, let's go into that stuff and let's go figure out like that should be our conversation between filmmakers of, man, I, you know, I can't, I can't figure out how to make my protagonist care about them, you know, and what, what archetypes should we really be paying attention to and calling back? Those are the things I think, um, that we should continue to, to focus on. Uh, and that's kind of the struggle for us. And for me, and going back to that original, like the Tin Man, like, why are we doing this and how do we get better at that? Um, because I, I for sure fell in love with the camera and, and the way the technical stuff looked. And I thought for a time, uh, that if I could just get this piece of equipment, if I could just get this camera, I could make the films that I wanted that were great. And it really, it turns out that you can make a really bad movie with a really great camera. <laughs> and I found that out firsthand. And that was a, that was a sucky realization. And, uh, so, you know, and you're like, well, I could either try to get a better camera or crap. That's I'm the problem. You know, that's like the, uh Oh, what if it's me? Um, and, uh, again, that's, again, that's part of the Tin Man story of saying, 
the process is is important and the craft is important but why are we out why are we out here in the first place Thomas Newman has a way of capturing uh, what I like to just call the heart of the film and that's something as musicians you know music music has a way of pulling at your heart almost like nothing else can in my opinion and so when I look for a film, I try to find there's a heart in every film, even even a you know a Tarantino film. There's heart somewhere in there, and finding what that is, it could be a it could be an evil heart, or it could be a good heart. But there's there's a soul of that thing that defines the music as something that as a composer I I lunge toward, you know, with great ferocity, trying to find. And for whatever reason, uh, old Tom seems to find it really really well. Like I I always tell the story of when my first son was born. He was premature and was in the NICU for uh, almost a month. And when we pulled him, when we took him out and finally took him home, it was it was terrifying because it was like I felt like I was gonna break him. You know, he was so little, and I thought, how can you just hand him over to me? I don't know what I'm doing. He just he left like you know a Mm -hmm. high, high, high security. skilled hospital and they just put him in my car which had probably chips on the floor or something i'm like right. i don't know how i'm gonna do this and so i got in my car and for whatever reason i uh, i put on the the soundtrack to finding nemo so when when the titles come up in nemo and he's just lost his wife and all of his you know unborn children he goes down there and sees that one remaining one and just the orchestra just kind of does that it just it just gets me every time I see it, and there's something about a heart and a moment that he captured in that. And I and I put it on as the as the leaves were falling, and I was driving home, bawling like a baby, listening to Thomas Newman uh, as my life was changing. But yeah, he he got it though, you know. He he just does it so well. It's funny too to watch what movie uh, Bridge of Spies, which is the first Spielberg film that John Williams hasn't done music for. And oh, really? I didn't. Since know. you can remember, yeah, he did the music for, which I was excited about because I love those guys. You know, it was fun to see. I wanted to see what would happen. And while I definitely missed Williams at times, I felt like, and this is a bold statement coming uh, from a fan like me, but you know, at the end of the film, I felt like. You know, as as Tom Hanks is kind of walking upstairs and is exhausted, and his wife is finally looking at him with this pride that her husband has done something so well. You know, Thomas Newman's piano and strings are underneath that, and I think he did just a fantastic job. I think I think he found the heart there better than anyone else could have. You know, again, I miss I miss John uh, on several parts of the film with his ability to just kind of blend in and be amazing. But when it came to finding that heart at the end of the film where it really needed it, Thomas Newman just – he showed up for sure. Do you do you know why uh, Spielberg didn't work with Williams in that? I, I mean you know, I called them, but they don't call me back as much <laughs> as they used to. Right. Uh, my understanding was that he was doing Star Wars uh, at the time and just – that was film. kind of a beast. Yeah. yeah, a little film you may have heard of. Uh, he was doing that and something about – I think he also got – he hurt his back and just like – it was legitimately just kind of laid out. But he's doing you know the new – the BFG and then right. whatever the other one is. Right. I keep track of John. I mean again, he's the national treasure. He's 80. He I remember I, I think – I talked about this to every one of my friends when the Force Awakens trailer came out. So you know it's – there's an awakening. That first little teaser, right? I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, yeah. And then the Much guy – Yeah, exactly. But the guy pops his head up and the orchestra just goes – it just goes nuts. And I thought – in a war, in in a world, in a world where every single trailer out there is cut to music, so they put this put the piece of music in there and they cut the film over it. It's not what John Williams does. He looks at the weird cuts and goes, "Cut it however you want. I'm going to make it work." And he just puts, you know, bars of seven and three and eight and whoever knows what in there to make it happen. And it's so good. And I just thought this guy, 
is making us look bad and he's 83, 82 years old and everyone else on the planet is out there just not you know, hitting that guy's standard. And it was just very humbling to watch just this 80, 80-something-year-old 80 school us all in one little teaser trailer. I was, I was blown away by it. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Huh. Podcasts can go.